teach me the chicken test. It's very simple. So I'm going to say chicken in a moment. And as soon as you hear me say chicken, you have to say chicken. Are you ready? I'm ready. Chicken. Chicken. Done. <laughs> There's a science to this. I can measure the latency of the call by the speed of your response. Ah, how are we doing? Yeah, we're good. <laughs> hey, podcast listener. Even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. This week on the show, I'm talking to Chris Kirkland from the Hobo CEO podcast. And it's not just a clever name. It's a really cool show. It's sort of like the philosophical corner of the location independent movement. I highly recommend it. And so we get into some of those issues in this show. I asked Chris about how the location independent movement has changed and what he sees for the future. Because, you know, he's been around for a long time. He founded his first company, ArtWeb, which is still in business today in 2005. We're also going to talk about one of his newer ventures called TokyoCheapo.com. Specifically, we'll talk about the challenges of running a content business. You know, it's got a team of writers and editors, the challenges of monetizing content on the web in 2015. But really, I was most curious about Japan. And so that's where this conversation starts. In a country that's famous for images of computers and robots and technology, why aren't more location-independent entrepreneurs choosing Japan as a place to live? Well, the simple answer is Japan was a great was a great technical innovator, but that's kind of fizzled out. It was like in the 80s, you know, they were really good with hardware. You've got Sony Walkman, Panasonic, Sharp, all these kind of big Japanese brands. You know, that innovation has really slowed down. Actually, if you kind of live here on the ground in Japan, one of the things that sticks out is how sort of, you know, almost backward and traditional things are. My favorite example is the fax machine. Apparently, something like 100% of businesses in Japan have a fax machine and like 70% use them on a regular basis. I look at a place like Vietnam, a very similar situation, yet all kinds of location independent people starting things up are going there. You've lived in Vietnam for quite a while as well. Why are people choosing Vietnam over a place like Japan? So I guess the simple comparison there would be cost or perceived cost. I actually spent almost as much in Vietnam on a monthly basis as I do in Tokyo. What's this big famous intersection in the middle of Tokyo that everybody takes photos of? It's Shibuya, Shibuya Crossing. Quite literally, we stayed in an apartment within a five-minute walk up the street. And the monthly rental, even through Airbnb, was totally affordable. And it shocked me because everybody says, you know, Tokyo is one of the most expensive cities in the world. Is that reputation at all warranted? Where does it come from? I think there's two things. It comes from the 80s, obviously, you know, the bubble years where everybody thought Japan was taking over the world. But more recently, it's because of the Mercer reports. If you don't know it, it's an expat survey that ranks the cost of living for expats in all the cities around the world. And I think from 2009 through 2011, Tokyo was always at number one. Now, this is slightly inaccurate because the kind of comparison they were using, like the shopping basket and the lifestyle, was basically an American life transplanted into other cities around the world. And in Tokyo, people live in tiny apartments. 
They don't have two cars. They don't even have one car. You know, they eat fish and rice as opposed to like kind of cheeseburgers and yogurts. It's kind of comparing apples to oranges a bit. I think the Mercer Report is another reason why the world thinks Tokyo is so expensive. What personally brought you to Japan? Why have you stayed there for so long? So the short answer is uh, I just fancied to change and almost by accident it ended up being Tokyo. Uh, I'd lived in England all my life and I wanted to live overseas. I wanted to live in a developed country and just basically an old friend said, hey, guys, let's all move to Japan. And that was kind of it. That happened about nine years ago. And since then, I'd say like my monthly living cost is usually around 2000 US dollars a month. There's a medium post. We can link to it in the show notes. I did like a detailed breakdown of what I actually spend the money on. You know, the secret to low cost living is living somewhere small. You know, don't try and live in a big an apartment like you're accustomed to in the West. And you can spend a lot of money if you like going out a lot and if you don't watch your expenditure. You know, I live this really healthy life. I eat a lot of good food. I've got gym membership. I do socialize. You know, I've got this really nice life and it's about 2000 US a month. You know, I was shocked by so many things when I went to Japan, but I'm going to share one with you and get your feedback on it. I think I might have mentioned this to you when we were in Tokyo. Is It's the first place I've visited in a really long time where I didn't fantasize about moving there. And one other thing is that of all the places in the world that it reminded me of, you know, the one place I thought Japan most reminded me of, it felt like I was at home. It reminded <laughs> me of the U.S. What are your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's interesting. You hear that a lot. Like Japan is a very normal place, you know, despite its kind of craziness and cultural differences. And, you know, in some senses, it is a bit like going into the sort of Disneyland Blade Runner paradox. <laughs> but actually, kind of once you've been there for a bit and you kind of see the sort of what people are doing, you know, they drive around in cars, they have TVs, they live in houses. You know, it's a developed country. If you could compare it to another country, America would probably be the closest. You know, there's a fair amount of American cultural influence. It's also isolated. It's sort of self-obsessed in the same way that America is. Oh, totally. Yeah, it's totally self-obsessed. <laughs> I think you can say the same for America. <laughs> Tokyo has more Michelin stars than any other city in the world, and it's this international thing. And, like, I'm not seeing any foreigners. Maybe there's a bunch of Koreans around me that I'm not noticing, but I'm just not seeing a lot of outsiders there, and I'm not hearing many other languages outside of Japanese. You're totally right. Japan is still very isolated, and the number of expats and tourists here is very small compared to other places like, you know, I think London and Paris, they've got eight to 10 times as many tourists, probably way more expats than Tokyo has. It's quite a sort of isolated place. It's a very Japanese place. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody here speaks Japanese. Not many people speak English. And, you know, the culture is quite different. In fact, a little bit of history here. Japan was actually closed to the outside world until about 150 years ago. You know, you'd actually be killed if you turned up. <laughs> Some Japanese person found you. A local samurai would wade over you and cut your head off. You know, so you live in Japan and speak Japanese all day long. How does it affect your behavior or personality living in Japan? Is there a version of yourself that sort of emerges when you're there? <laughs> That's a great question. I often wonder this. I wonder, like, have these six odd years being immersed in Japanese culture sort of picked away at my personality? <laughs> I definitely think I'm much, much more considerate of other people now. I could be because I'm just, you know, a bit older. You know, when I was in my early 20s, I was just messy, jumping around, making a noise, having fun. 
But that kind of behavior soon gets like sharp looks coming away in Tokyo. You know, it's quite a crowded place. You've got to live in harmony with the others. So I definitely notice there's like this weight being lifted when I go to Europe because there's just sort of less tension because people are more chilled. They express themselves more freely without worrying whether they're going to kind of be spitting on the person next to them. One of the things I like about Chris's show is how philosophical it is. And I think Chris's perspective is pretty unique because he's been doing this since 2005. You know, that's before the Skype out revolution allowed people like myself without a lot of technical skills to be able to get into this lifestyle. So, you know, I started living location independently in 2008. So I asked Chris's perspective about how things have changed over the years and what he sees for the future of the location independent movement. The most obvious one is until about 2012, maybe 2011, I was alone. I just knew nobody else who was doing this. That was quite difficult because there was a period just before I discovered the DC where I was like just really starting to question myself. Like, is this wrong what I'm doing here? Is this just taking off to the beach on a Tuesday or going to Thailand? Am I somehow being wrong? Because like I had other entrepreneurial friends, but they were all in offices in Tokyo or London or whatever. You know, just the fact that there's now other people, that's like a huge change. You know, there's a scene, there's people you can talk to, there's people who are on your level. For me, that's like been the biggest change. There's like a kind of industry popping up around it now. You know, there's all kinds of co-working spaces and blogs and coaches. And, you know, it's like this kind of full on scene. And there's like this industry around it now. I guess the four hour work week was the first, you know, that was the thing that like blew the lid off this lifestyle. And I think prior to that, there was really almost nothing, you know, a few travel bloggers. I really didn't meet any other hobo CEOs. I didn't meet any other people who were running like a software startup. It's getting so easy to travel now and it's going to become much more of a normal thing. I imagine like in the long term, it's probably going to establish some sort of balance where you have a few people that are permanent travelers, but that would be the minority then you have a lot more people like myself who I've used the frame sabbatical travel, where maybe you kind of go off for a year or two or something. And the other one would maybe be you'd have like multiple home bases where you have like a place here, you have a place there. Other version of that would be you have a home base, but you're just kind of taking like three months off a year to do your sort of slow travel. I'm more of the last category, I suppose. So I can basically live in Tokyo now, but three to five months of the year I'm going to be spending in other cities. You essentially see this pushing much deeper down into society. Now it's this small group of sort of techno bourgeoisie, but yeah. eventually this will be much more common. And I see this having a lot of impacts on sort of the bureaucratic structures that we're pushing against. Like we all have to do these sort of ridiculous song and dances. Like there's no category for this group. And you're seeing these things change gradually. One of the things I thought it was very interesting is that, you know, there's a little scuff up in Chiang Mai a few months ago and like Chiang Mai sort of officially recognized digital nomads and they officially yep. addressed them and said, it's okay, digital nomads are okay to be here. You know, we're always in this like weird tweener phase on the passport stamper. Filipinos, for example, they have to go to, to European governments and like list out like classic kind of travel itineraries in order to visit Europe. Like yep. you're going to be on a bus the whole time, you know? Yep. It's like, but you have to do it now. I can't see that holding up over the next decade. 
maybe looking at the developed world first. I think obviously you've got different citizens around the world with different level of freedom. And, you know, looking at the developed world, I think the biggest effects will be just in how businesses operate. These learnings trickling down from how we're running our businesses, you know, it's going to basically make working and living remotely a much more accessible and normal thing. It could end up creating a divide, though. Like you just said there, like you've got like the digital nomads in Chiang Mai and it's like this kind of separate category. And in a sense, there's a danger of that happening in developed countries and everywhere because certain jobs, certain roles just can't be location independent. You can't really be a dentist remotely. I kind of wonder if there might be some sort of negative effect there where you've got this sort of, for want of a better word, location dependent underclass. And then you've got like the rest of the world who like, yeah, I'm doing my IT job in Bali. Poor dentist. You sat in Seattle where it's raining. You have a podcast that started out decidedly niche, I would say. Yeah. And I'm the niche. You kind of have like a philosophical kind of nugget in front of you at the beginning of every episode. And then you just kind of attack it for an hour, which is it's great. So one of the topics that I've noticed and seen, but I'm not sure what it is, but I'm pretty sure I practice it, is something you call under-optimization. So I'm wondering if you can flesh it out a little bit and talk about what kind of role it has in entrepreneurship for you. I came to this idea because of I was previously an over-optimizer and I burnt out. I kind of experienced the sharp end of like trying too hard, trying to kind of squeeze every last ounce I could out of my work and play life. And this is very typical of lifestyle designers are people who are making a big change in their life, right? Like I'm going to stop eating sugar. I'm going to stop talking to friends. I'm going to eat modafinil. I'm going to put my laptop on the end of my treadmill kind of thing. I'm going to do the sleep packs and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I really kind of learned the hard way. I like, I was ill for quite a few years because I just burnt myself out. You know, I had low energy and thank God I had a four hour work week business to tide me through (laughs) because I could only work four hours a week for a while. That's kind of how I kind of came to it. And the basic premise is if you're doing the right thing, then you don't really need to do it like 110%. It's like you're doing the right thing already. You can kind of chill a bit, just kind of, you know, like Tai Chi, like this, this kind of gentle but strong force. You don't have to kind of fire everything at it. And contrary, if you're like not doing the right thing, you might kind of end up having to do all these optimizations to sort of get just a little bit of progress. It's something that we're all kind of subject to. I think it's a very human thing. It's a very natural thing to try and sort of do things better, 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 faster, faster, faster. One of the things about distributed businesses, and you called it a four-hour workweek business, is that sometimes because of the travel, because of the global nature of them, we bake in these under-optimizations. And one of the ones that you talk about is asynchronous conversations. So rather than being in an office next to somebody and walking over to the desk and saying, hey, Edmund, what do you think of this? You can just like put it in an Asana task. You can put it in an email. You can basically batch that communication. And instead of interrupting them in real time, you can allow them to just kind of deal with that communication when it suits them. As I gather you've discovered yourself, this is one of the huge hidden upsides I found when I took my business location independent. There's a strength in somebody when they can kind of put their business in its place on the shelf in their life, so to speak. But it just seems so hard for people to do. Yeah, I think it's a natural human thing. You know, we're probably trying to survive. It's probably the survival mechanism. And in the modern 
modern life, it's getting applied to where it doesn't really need to. You know, you really don't need to spend 100% of your time on your business, especially if you've already got something, you've established a good formula and it's working. You need that balance. You need that time to decompress and reflect. So Chris and I originally got in touch to talk about one of his newer ventures, TokyoChibo.com. I think this is interesting, not only because it's a very challenging business model, but because a lot of us see these opportunities as location-independent entrepreneurs. You know, you move to a new place and you see a hole in the media landscape. So Chris decided to do something about it in Tokyo. So start off by asking him what Tokyo Cheapo is all about. It's basically a content site, a blog, telling people who are tourists or expats what to do, where to go, where to stay, where to eat, with a focus on good value or you know, being a cheapo. It's about 150,000 uniques a month. It's really exploded in the last six months or so. I've been running for about three years. It's probably about 70% tourists, 30% expats. If you just find a pop-up, Dan, then that will be our Sumo Me plugin that we finally installed, inviting people to get on our cheapo hacks mailing list. It's doing really well for you in terms of opt-in rate, yeah? I guess percentage-wise, I don't know what a good one is, but we're getting about 1,000 email addresses a month from that. Is most of your monetization now, you have the eBooks, but is it mostly ads? Affiliate programs and ads. We do all right with the Goda, obviously, because big travel profile of our audience. There's a few kind of specific articles which we've managed to match up with some affiliate programs so actually to be honest the ads you know we have adsense but it's a really pitiful revenue pretty sure that's because we have an english-speaking audience geographically outside of english-speaking countries so nobody's bidding for those clicks you know it's a blog site but you're not sitting around writing these articles all day long you're kind of spinning the top so to speak what was the genesis of the site and how do you keep it going with like good content and you know everything that needs to happen to keep a blog running but not doing much of the work yourself it's kind of a buyer's market for content there's a lot of people who are willing to write interested in writing especially when it's like approaching the sort of culture travel side so there's a lot of people available to write and it's a buyer's market so it doesn't cost that much to pay for the content. We have an editor. They're using Trello. There's this nice Trello workflow, which all the writers put their ideas into, and then the editor moves into the next queue. And it's all very simple and streamlined. So basically, now we have an editor. She kind of does all the work with the authors directly. She inputs all the articles. It's kind of the content side of it's basically hands-free. You know, you were mentioning that 20% of your articles bring in 80% of your revenue and traffic. So is it you who's saying, you know, we need a quick guide to getting an apartment in Shibuya or whatever. Are you coming up with those headlines and then going to the authors and saying, get me 600 words on this? What we do is we have a monthly planning meeting with our editor. That's me, Greg, and the editor. And we basically look at what ideas have been popular this same time of year. We look at what worked the last month. And also that's when we're feeding in things like, yeah, we need to do an article about renting cars or if we establish there's some kind of financial incentive for us writing about something. So basically we do those monthly meetings. The idea of that is just to kind of fill up our editor's brain and our Trello lists with some good ideas. And then the rest of it is basically down to the editor and the authors to just also write from their heart. You know, a lot of the article ideas have nothing to do with myself and Greg. They're just either the editors come up with the idea or an author has pitched the article to us. So how much does an article cost? How do you determine the cost? And then how do you decide how much content to purchase? 
So in the beginning, it was free. It's because we have the name Cheapo in our domain name. It was quite easy to say to authors, well, we don't have a lot of money, so we can give you glory, but <laughs> we soon stopped that. It's kind of like herding cats, trying to get people to do stuff for free. We have some, usually have fixed prices for the articles, depending on like how long they are or how much research they required. And they're pretty cheap. I think it's like the kind of small one is like 20 bucks for an article. The big one is, I think it's more like 70, maybe 60, 70 US for an article. In addition, we have some kind of columns, like we have an events writer that we give them a fixed wage each month to just kind of cover loads of events. Basically, we've just, the site makes X amount of dollars from advertising and whatnot. And we just basically feed that back into the content budget. A lot of people want to do what you've done, but there's tons of challenges to making money with this. Like you said, in 2015, you know, you're nose to nose with TripAdvisor and, you know, the AdSense days have sailed, ship has sailed. Yeah. I mean, and I have heard in the past two people, Agoda's working for people. What do you see as the future potential for sites like these? It's all about business model. Basically, we've got an advertising business model. And I don't think that that's particularly robust or defensible business model in 2015, unless you're like doing the technology like Google or Facebook or something. It's kind of like a race to the bottom. Like in Tokyo, I can see there's an opportunity for what we're doing. A lot of brands who are trying to reach potentially our audience, like tourists, they're burning money by paying for print ads, which just costs like way more than what they could be doing online. But even despite of that, I can see that, you know, the advertising industry is very much going to be affected by technology changes. So I think if you're doing like some sort of content site and that's your business model, it's going to be tricky. However, as you kind of alluded to earlier, if we think of it more like we have a network of expats or a community of expats and look at it as that, I think that's where the decent business models will lie. You know, we might suddenly find out that there's no like pet walking service or I don't know. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like we understand what our audience is and just kind of look for business models within that. Just like doing a content site, just like that advertising model, it's, you know, it's going to be tricky. If we've got 150,000 monthly uniques, I remember you speaking to James Clark like a couple of years ago. And, you know, I remember like the premise of the article was like, you know, build a travel blog up to about, you know, 20,000 uniques. And, you know, you can connect with a few services in travel and, you know, you can make this nice little income. And like we've kind of smashed through that years ago. You know, we're not seeing those dollars. It's like still basically there's enough to pay some writers, but it's not profitable by any means yet. I've talked about this with Taylor as well. A lot of content generators have lamented the lack of a solid back end business model. And also like just I think operational businesses have lamented in the social media age the cost of marketing. Now it's not just burning print ads, it's hiring writers and hiring this and that. So it does seem like marrying this content operation on the front end with a business operation on the back end is ultimately the way to succeed. But it's risky because you're going to have to tack on a whole operation onto whatever you're doing, whether that's a dog walking service, an events company, or opening a co-working space or whatever it is. It's like a different proposition. You know, you've basically, you just look at the content site as a marketing channel for this other new business you come up with. One final question I have for you that's on a similar vein, and it has to do with your podcast. You know, we're kind of joking that, you know, maybe in 10 years, there'll be more podcasters than podcast listeners. (laughs) But, you know, you do have this kind of podcast that it's obviously a passion project. It's sort of a personal brand for you. Do you feel like it's been worth it for you to do that? 
Yeah, it's totally been worth it. You know, the amount of people I've met from the podcast, the amount of interesting people that have reached out to me, the VIP status, I've had a few meetups because somebody <laughs> heard my podcast. Our goalposts were never about revenue. We never started this podcast with a goal of making money off it. You know, we thought maybe sometime in the distant future, there might be some monetization, but, you know, primarily we want to do it because we want to, you know, practice our communication skills. We like talking to each other. And we think that there might be other people who kind of want to listen in or join in the conversation. If you'd like to join the conversation, Chris and I will be in the podcast show notes. They'll all be at tropicalmba.com slash Tokyo. And if you like Chris's silky smooth accent, I do suggest that you check out his show. It's at hoboceo.com. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning. 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.